HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Eating Tools, unique handmade cooking tools. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Molly Feening, co-founder and CEO of Red Clay Hot Sauce, a modern Southern hot sauce and hot honey company using sustainable practices and local ingredients to make sauces that enhance, not mask, the food on your plate. Molly launched Red Clay with chef and co-founder Jeff Ryan in 2015 and then stepped into the role of CEO in 2018. She has since grown Red Clay a consistent 2 to 400% growth year over year for three years straight. Red Clay is stocked on shelves at the Fresh Market, Whole Foods, Publix, and on Amazon. Welcome, Molly. Thank you, Allie. I'm happy to have you here. I think this is, um, I'm sure you get calls all the time, as do I, about sort of the pivot or transition or whatever you want to call it, growth from a restaurant brand into a CPG brand. And I feel like it's, especially during COVID, we have a lot of opportunity to help our fellow um, brick and mortar folks um, taking, you know, taking their products that their consumers love and their guests always appreciate, but kind of helping them figure out how to get those retail ready and out into the world. So you clearly started this before any of that was an issue, but what, what, what was the story and how, you know, I guess the summary of sort of taking it as something from a restaurant and turning it into a packaged good. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Ali, for, for having me. I'm have, so happy to be here. And yeah, so Red Clay, um, we technically started Red Clay, incorporated, packaged it for restaurant tables actually in 2014. Um, okay. And I stepped in and we really, you know, took it from a, um, a cult favorite local artisan Charleston hot sauce to a scalable national chef-driven food product in 2018. And that's really sort of where we view the the heart or the start of Red Clay. But 
in 2014, um, I was running a different business. My first baby business, a CPG mm-hmm. company called Babyators, Aviator Sunglasses for Babies and Kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still own that. I started that with my husband and, and another couple from college, friends of ours. Um, and it's been about 11 years. And wow. Um, we've scaled it. We've sold about 5 million pairs of life, the business, but at this point, our team really runs the day to day and I am full time, you know, neck deep in hot sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, I, I, the reason red clay started is I was pregnant with Fox, our second son, who's now six. And all I wanted that pregnancy were dirty martinis and oysters, neither of which my doctor would let me have. So um, our first date out after baby, we went to my favorite oyster bar here in in Charleston in town. And I sat at the bar and ordered my martini and ordered oysters and was very happy camper. And the bartender came over to me and asked if I wanted hot sauce with my oysters. And I, and I said, no, I'm not really a hot sauce person. Ironically, now as a hot sauce CEO, mm-hmm. did not want hot sauce at the time. And the bartender sold me on this hot sauce. He said, no, our chef makes it and, and he ages it in bourbon barrels. And it's made with these beautiful local Fresno peppers and, and it's perfectly balanced, not too hot. And and I was like, got it, you know, give, give it to me. He brought it over and I had it and turned to my husband and was like, this is the best thing I've ever had. And I don't even like hot sauce. This is the right. <laughs> and so I asked him to go back in the kitchen. He met Chef Jeff. Um, Jeff was executive chef at the time of, at the restaurant and shook his hand. And two weeks later, we had invested whatever, I think it was ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 to help get this off the ground in 2014. And it, we were very hands-off, silent money for four years. Um, and Jeff would call us periodically. And in the meantime, just it was sustained by our local Charleston Food and Bev community and his chef friends loving it and supporting and putting it on their restaurant tables and cooking with it. And mm-hmm. Um, and you know, customers of, of the restaurants who carried it, loving it, wanting to buy it, bought it off the, from them or went on our right. website and Googled it. And, you know, I, in 2018, when baby eaters didn't need me in the same way. And I think I had read an article about Sir Kensington's ketchup and how it scaled from mm-hmm. sold some number, it's private number, but roughly 17, 18 million, not sure exactly what to 140 million, a big, big multiple. You know, I realized everything Sir Ken's was in in ketchup to differentiate itself. Millennial consumer, thoughtfully crafted, high quality ingredient, all of those things. We were in the hot sauce space and a light bulb went on to me and I pitched Jeff and we, we, we set the goal to take it from this cult sauce to a national brand. And that's what we've been doing since 2018. Amazing. I mean, there there are two big sort of, and by the way, the Cholula exit must have been a fun one for you also. I think that was like an eight X or something. (laughs) Yeah, you know, nine X top line. Yeah, I was going to say somewhere between eight and ten. It's it is interesting, you know, like you would think that I I don't know. I was kind of in the sauce, like, oh, does the world need another sauce? And you know, I think we're we're clearly you know, differentiated enough. So obviously I went for it, but a, a very smart friend of mine said something I've, I've quoted her before on the podcast, but she said something like condiments are like lip glosses. Like you don't just have one condiment that you like, you know, it depends on your mood and it depends on the time of day. And sometimes you layer them. It was just such a great way of framing it. Cause you know, they really are. And I think especially, and we can talk more about this, you know, 
later, but especially today when people are definitely at home, they're cooking more, they've figured out a couple of like unlocks, you know, how to get my chicken juicier and how to get my tofu crispy. Now, how do I make it good? Um, you know, we, I think we are in the right space. Um, but going back, it seems to me like there are sort of two foundings almost like there was the original sort of, I mean, had he already gotten it from something that he sold or made for the restaurant into something that was produced at a co-packer and industrialized in some way where, you know, did you look at the numbers, did, you know, because things that are cultish and special and, you know, precious also tend to be expensive and hard to scale and all yes. of that. So yes. point, point <laughs> A, <laughs> um, and, you know, if so, was that, did, did any action happen around that in the early years or is it more like at point B in 2018 where you were like, okay, now we're going to like make this actually scalable? Yes, definitely the, the latter. Mm -hmm. um, in 2014, you know, Jeff is still hand, hand batching it, small batching it. Um, and, you know, when I stepped in in 2018 um, to scale, you know, one of my conditions of stepping in as CEO is we needed to, you know, I, I really believe you, you buy first with your eyes and that, that best in class branding and a beautiful label. And I'm kind of a brand new geek. So like mm -hmm. the, the, the packaging, the unboxing moment, what does the website look like? What is the voice of the, of the brand and the color palette? And, yeah. and I really wanted to, to bring those up to everything that Red Clay stood for. But in addition to that, it was about scaling our processes and you know, what makes Red Clay different than other hot sauces out there it, it, and so unique and special is, is, you know, we are not the hottest hot sauce. It is about kind of taking beautiful local ingredients and honoring them in a really chef-driven, balanced way where it hits all those flavor profile notes that a beautiful fine dining plate of food hits, which is sweet meats, salty meats, acid meats, umami meats, heat, and it's balanced. And the way he did that is, you know, my partner being a fine dining chef, it, got really chefy with it and it was like okay well the way you make this beautiful small batch olive oil is cold press every other hot sauce bottle on the grocery shelf boils their peppers to, to, mm -hmm. to produce it for for you know preservation he decided to cold press it and age it the way you'd cold press fresh juice or age and ferment kombucha Mm -hmm. So we were literally a pepper, a fermented pepper juice that he then added, for, you know, French white wine vinegar versus distilled white vinegar that he cooked with in the kitchen or, and then salt and, you know, sort mm -hmm. of the Fresno pepper. And then decided the way you age, you know, wine and oak barrels in California, we drink bourbon in the South. So he, his friend had a bourbon distillery, Highwire, and he would give him his, his, his used bourbon barrels and he was done with them. And our, our batches in the beginning were literally aged in little bourbon barrels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> scale. So it was very precious, small batch. Um, and, and one of the reasons I think it just defined this cool cult presence and his, his chef, his chefy friends, were obsessed with it because it had those, you know, a really right. delicious, almost like an ingredient in cooking, not an aftermath, mm -hmm. add heat as a condiment after the fact. And, yeah. you know, Sean Brock, when he made, he's a, a James Beard restaurant mm -hmm. winner, when he made his cooking book, his, his first cookbook, it, it had a hot sauce recipe. And then at the bottom, it said in it, 
you know, and if you don't want to make your own, buy red clay. Right, <laughs> and I right. think it speaks to sort of this elevated chef flavor palette um, that that Jeff spoke to with his with his product. And so when I stepped in as 2018, and we, you know, our first month after we launched our website, the two of us drive up to Greensboro, North Carolina, and sit at the headquarters of Fresh Market, and we're next to all these brokers and people with bags and 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 boxes of stuff. And we had one bottle and one PowerPoint deck, like print it out. And right. we walked into the meeting. We're just like, these are our values. This is what this sauce stands for. We're not sacrificing what we stand for. This is who we are. And they they picked us up. And Fresh Market was our fir- the first national account to scale to every door. It was 240 doors. And then after, shortly after that, Whole Foods picked us up for 60 doors in the South. And so we had two big accounts. And we could not... Yeah, fulfill them with Jeff's hand bottling in his right. backyard, and that when I stepped in, that was you know we did an angel round convertible note to raise about seven hundred grand to to to, to purposefully source co-manufacturers that could do our complex method of cold pressing and fermenting, um, because every co-man we went on the hot sauce side couldn't yeah. take this on because they all were certified for heat processing. So we had to spend the money and be really thoughtful about scalability. Yeah. I mean, there's so much here and I'm just thinking, you know, all these calls I get from, you know, friends of friends who have these, you know, mustards, jams, pickles, you know, frozen entrees, sauces, everything who are trying to figure out, you know, there are so many steps you know, what do I tackle first? Do I tackle the brand identity? Do I, do I figure out, you know, even, even my friends who have direct-to-consumer businesses that are trying to figure out retail, your package has to be completely different, you know, from something that looks amazing online. Yes, it needs to still look good, but everything that needs to be on a package in a grocery store is different. And, you know, forget about the certificates and the requirements and the, you know, SQF and all that stuff. It's just, you have you know, you have a very dedicated audience in a restaurant who loves you and loves the sauce. It, you know, even us, we had people at the cooking school who would have bought anything we put there because they trusted us. But the minute that you're outside of that bubble, all of a sudden, you know, someone's standing, they're looking at a grocery store shelf. They, you know, they make a very quick decision whether or not to step toward your product. You know, that's the 10 foot rule. Then there's like the three foot rule. And then there's like the arm's length rule. Forget about even like picking it up and looking at what's in it. So I guess my question for you is if you were breaking this down, you know, you had the, you had everything in front of you, you had, you know, how do I, how do I sell this? How do I make this? Who are we? How do I tell that story to people who don't already know us? You know, how, did you start the way that you explained it to me? Did you start with sort of identity and voice and package and brand? Or did you start with, you know, we got to find some place to make this because you knew that would be hard? I mean, a great question. And I, I think for me, I think the first, the first step is 
in, in any product-based business is the product itself, right? And what makes your product so unique? What gap does it fill in the market? Who is the tribe and the customer base that's unique demographic psychographics that you can speak to that would be your enthusiastic brand advocates that will come back again and again, that will mm -hmm. spread the word about you. And so the product, once the product is good and lives up to its expectations from the consumer, then it's about brand. And mm -hmm. you, like you, sh like I said, you, you sort of shop with your eyes first. Mm -hmm. You make that first purchase because you, some for some reason, it catches your eye, or the values speak to you, or the about page story of the brand founder is something you have, you know, sort of stokes joy yeah, in your heart. Right. And you want to support the person. There's a reason you first buy into the brand before you even try the product. And that is aesthetic or that is the story or that is what it promises it's selling you, delicious flavor, no sugar. I don't know. What are the, what are, what are the things you're drawn to? Then next, the product needs to live up to that expectation. And that's what people come back for reordering and, and talking about it and posting about it and sharing the recipe on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. And so right. they, they kind of go hand in hand. You need both. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, once you have the beautiful branding that's, that, that, encapsulates, embodies the heart of your product and the humans behind the product. Because again, there's so much out there to consume that my, myself as a consumer, I always look to see who are the humans I'm supporting. I don't want to support yep. the, the, say the big behemoth anonymous corporations. And so I, I really encourage you to put yourself out there as the entrepreneur um, or the chef behind the brand or the restaurant owner, whoever you are. And so I, I feel like it, those two together next for me is the website because mm -hmm. that is where you can really tell your proper tell story, your, story. Your, yeah. your website and your social media channels. And the first thing people do is Google you once they hear about you, whether it's the brand name or they see you on the shelf or they, they find a story about you in a PR or re listen to a podcast. They, they go and Google and, and they, and they, they, and they, you want to kind of learn a little bit more and have your most, your, your cheapest way to tell your best story is through your website. And, yeah. you know, you can talk about kind of COVID changing what it's like for chef driven businesses or, or chef driven food products. I, I really believe it has es escalated or, mm -hmm. or heightened by probably, you know, a decade in time, the way yeah. people purchase food and Bev um, products direct to your doorstep. And so yeah. more and more people are now in a habit of shopping direct to consumer for, for groceries and, and, um, you know, non-perishables where they, they would not have prior. And yeah. so you, it's also your highest margin channel. And so you're able to get much more profit from, from a sale direct via Shopify to the consumer's doorstep than you will in the grocery shelf. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because, yeah. you know, pretty early in the story here, you go to the fresh market, right? Arguably, you could have launched this exclusively D to C. You could no. have built up a massive business, you know, several millions of dollars just direct, and then kind of gone and do what a lot of people do, which is then say, hey, fresh market, these are the people in your zip code that have bought me in the last year. Like, you want these sales? Because if you do, then put me on the shelf. I mean, obviously it's not that easy and no one's that cavalier. Um, but why was it important to you early on to get, on a retail shelf or was that just because that you thought that was the route or was there a method to that? 
I, I think, you know, for me, I viewed our growth as three legs of the stool and, I, I, and then they all balance one another out for it to, to, to be stable. And that's number one, the direct to consumer channel. And I put Amazon in with that, just with the mm-hmm. nature of Amazon sort of being a necessary evil, um, personally. Uh, so our website and Amazon being our e-commerce presence, um, the, um, grocery channel, um, being the second leg of the stool. And then the third hospitality and food food service as a, as a chef driven product, we care a lot about supporting other restaurants, being on the right restaurant tables, partnering with the right kind of hospitality venues to, to spread the word. And I almost view those dollars as marketing dollars. So Mm -hmm. we offer our cheapest price to restaurant owners because we understand their margins are already thin and they love our product. We want them to have it. And so if somebody tries our sauce and, and, and has a positive association at that, at that restaurant, um, we're okay making less money per sale because they might go and Google us and purchase it later or see us on a grocery shelf later and remember it from that time they ate at Leon's oyster shop or found oyster in LA or whatever it is. Yeah. So we want those right parts partnerships. But I, so I, I viewed it as growing all three. We have seen much more significant growth than I expected on direct to consumer these past couple of years because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So we're now kind of pivoting a little bit on where we spend our dollars and where we hire within our team to mm-hmm. focus. Um, right. I want to say we finished last year at 2.2 million, 400 grand with sales on our website and another 175 or so on Amazon. So you know, there more profitability there, but mm-hmm. Publix alone might have been a million dollar account or just under a million. And so it is the velocity in grocery. You right. just met, I'll get an order from Publix that's 300 grand. Yeah. And I'll get an order on my website that's a $9 order. So, well, yeah. And I also think, I mean, you know, sorry to interrupt, but I also think, you know, it got a lot more expensive mm-hmm. in, you know, the last year to, oh. you know, the the D2C channel, you know, used to be like, oh my gosh, you guys are paying what in trade spend? Now all of a sudden the retail channel were like, you guys are playing what to Facebook? Totally. You know, so it's um I think that's why, you know, we all need to figure out some sort of omnichannel approach, you know, you know, with fresh, like you said, you know, you're being perishable, we're in a little bit of a different situation. We're never going to be sort of that like 30, 40%. I, I can't imagine um, direct, but that said, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice balance to have all of them. And, and I think, you know, to your point also retail does, I mean, I think I was talking to someone about this on one of the episodes a couple of weeks ago, retail is also very much a marketing opportunity. If Publix has vetted your product and they think it's worth putting on their shelves, there is no question in my mind that people who might not buy it at Publix are going to buy it online if they see it, because you've been sort of given that seal of approval. There's so much crap out there that looks pretty, but you know there is something, it's kind of like Yelp, in a way, right? Like, yeah, everyone has a review and everyone, everything's been democratized to some extent, but how do you know what's really good? There are still some experts. And I think of a Publix as very much, you know, fresh market isn't putting anything on their shelf that isn't of a certain quality. 
it's known for that. That's its differentiation. So even if the margin is a little different, you know, and obviously you don't chalk it up to marketing, um, there certainly is that effect. It's true. And Fresh yeah. Market is one of my favorite shopping experiences as a consumer. And that's actually think, why I drove up there first. Yeah, because I just there. love the, I feel like I'm in, you know, like, you know, the old Cracker Barrel restaurant meets, yep. you know, I'm pouring my cup of coffee while I'm walking around the wine section. It just, it has a, yep. an amazing experience I wanted our, our brand to be associated to. Yep. So uh, thoughtfully that was sort of the, the deliberate sort of selfish motivation yeah, is a goal that of makes sense. to be on that shelf. I mean, the reality is also there's just nothing, there's really nothing better than seeing your product out in the wild on a shelf. It's just, it's, there's something like, I don't know, seeing your, your dog win best in show yeah, or I don't know. It's a dream for sure. Yeah, I think the yeah. first time we saw a baby in Baby Eaters, uh, we were in Manhattan and I think my husband and I followed the stroller for like six months. <laughs> <laughs> we need those classes. We need those classes. In the mother's like running. This kid in a stroller. Like right. we, didn't, we didn't gift this pair to him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, okay. We are going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to break everything down even further. Love it. Eating Tools was born to showcase the artists, metalsmiths, woodworkers, and craftspeople behind the endless interpretations of the ancient tools that feed us. The curated collection of unique and extraordinary handmade culinary utensils you'll find at Eating Tools, along with a hand-picked selection of top-quality production-made pieces, presents a catalog of products never before assembled in one place. Food, cooking, craftsmanship, and art are their ingredients. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. I'm back with Molly Feening, a co-founder and CEO of Red Clay Hot Sauce. Okay, so we started talking before the break about the different channels. Um, and, you know, I think this is, I, I, I want to back up a little bit into what the aha moment was for you, you know, you knew that things were going pretty well, or you wouldn't have stepped in and sort of taken the reins as CEO in 2018. Um, but something probably happened pretty quickly thereafter where you were like, okay, this is really going to work. And I'm wondering, was it the fresh market or was it this like boom in D to C that happened you know, what, what surprised you, I guess, or, you know, just gave you that like, okay, this is now I'm now we're cooking with gas. Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. I feel like I've had a couple of those. Tell me all strange light bulb yeah. moments over the course of the day <laughs> since, since being CEO and, you know, the, but I think the first one really was going from, you know, you know, we wanted to, to sort of invest some money to support this great, partner, my, you know, chef, Jeff, who is salt of the earth, wonderful, you know, family man. I mean, just, you know, loved the sauce and he was and loved him. And so genuinely wanted to, as an angel investor support going from that role to, I, I sort of spot an opportunity here to put my blood, sweat, and tears and years of my life behind um, to make a, a brand name that could literally be a, a household name mm -hmm. in the condiment space, that 
I think, was watching these consumer trends in chef-driven food products, the growing trend of the celebrity chef and people sort of the home cook, the foodie, you know, seeing that mm-hmm. kind of the investment in, I'm going to spend a little more dollars on something really premium. Like Rayos. Uh-huh. Yes. And so I think sir, the article I read in Sir Kensington and, and everything it talked about, the article I read in Inc. about Sir Kensington's mm-hmm. exit and, and seeing kind of these parallels of, okay, you know, they, we are thoughtfully crafted, we are chef driven, we are um, higher quality ingredients than the consume, than the, than the competitors. Th- this could be a story that we can very easily tell. Yeah. Um, I had kind of, after that, I started doing some due diligence on hot sauce as a category and saw it mm. is the fastest growing condiment in category in the category fastest growing category in condiments um the flavor profile or appetite for heat and spice in america is growing rapidly it's a one billion dollar industry and i think interestingly in contrast to ketchup it is very segmented mm-hmm. and so you have hunts and heinz owning 99.9999 percent of ketchup right and sir ken's came in as the david to the goliath yeah we you know tabasco which is sort of the old standard probably most famous name in hot sauce only owned at the time 12% market share right. of the $1 billion. And now granted it's privately owned. They've never taken you know outside capital. It's a family owned business that is generating 350 million a year. Like right. they're killing it. But to your uh, point, there's more for you. You don't have to take away from them totally. to take away from the category. Totally. And that's, that's the kicker. Right. And which, it, is, and which is, I think really interesting for people to think about because, you know, we, going back to sort of the advice giving of the purpose of this podcast, when we say, you know, do your desk research and just look at the category, I think this is really great advice. It's not just look at who the competitors are. It's look up, look at the breakup of that competition. If it's, you know, if the majority of sales in that category are private label, you have a completely different mission ahead of you right? Then if the bulk of the sales in that category are one brand, if it's super, you know, spread out over several brands, then you just need to eke out a little wedge, you know, just take a little from each and, and you're in a better position. I think that's really good advice. And if there's less monopoly, then you know, the consumer is already trained to try lots of of Mm -hmm. different competitors. Like you, you said at the beginning of the hour, you know, People are are used to trying, um, mm-hmm. you know, a couple different hot sauces, right? You might have four or five hot sauces in your fridge you do use for different purposes. Um, yeah. Versus, I I have you know Heinz alone or or Sir Ken's alone kind of sitting in my fridge as as my ketchup. And yeah. so it's a it's a category where you it's you know the shoppers already trained to to try a kind of a fun new option or you know, buy multiple bottles. Um, well, let, let's talk about that for a second. Cause I know we're sort of mid list of the aha moments, but I do kind of want to talk about category a little bit. Um, just, you know, it is a regional preference. There are, you know, there are very strong feelings about how I like my hot sauce. Where do I want my hot sauce to be from, you know, issues around sort of who gets to decide and authenticity and all of that stuff. And I guess, you know, what is your, what's your view on it? And how do you think about all of that? 
I mean, I'm, I sort of subscribe to the rising tide raises all boats um, and, and seeing the sort of trend in people wanting more heat. People, you know, you have East Asian flavors influencing American food. You have Hispanic flavors influencing American food. And it's, you know, traditionally you think about, you know, TV dinners from the 50s or even the 1980s, you know, kind of sort of low, you know, sort of low fat diet of the American diet is very, very bland, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, moving now finally towards spice and heat and flavor is really exciting and that's only growing. So the pie is only getting bigger. And so for us, you know, you know, I think establishing ourselves in hot sauce for sure and owning the fact that we are sort of a modern take on those old Southern flavors. So the expats who've left the South that want to have the, the, you know, vinegar, sort of not your hottest hot sauce, sort of balanced flavor notes, we can speak to that or that, you know, had a great time in Charleston and want to take a little piece of Charleston home with them or just care more about adding flavor and having it be fresh and clean. And so the, the cold pressed element, the fermented element adds notes of probiotics and we're no, no sugar. And so it's an, I think another reason we're seeing hot sauce as a category grow is in the, in the world of paleo whole 30, you can add flavor and spice without adding junk and yep. sugar and carbs, um, which I think is also really interesting just in terms of the food trends. And in terms of that sort of regionality, you know, I had Jimbo's um, head of you know, head buyer on last week, a great guy named Wade Yenny. Um, And he was talking about, you know, he's been a buyer for, I don't know, 30 years. And I was sort of like, if you were starting a brand, how would you, how would you do it? You know, what would your go-to-market strategy be? And he said that he would pick a couple of very key demographics and he would focus really, really deep in on them. So he would make, you know, if Charleston is, is it for you, you know, for us, it's, you know, clearly New York and LA or whatever and over invest and not go too wide, too fast. And, you know, stick with that region of whole foods instead of trying to go global too quickly and really make sure that, you know, you own that demographic and that, and you learn everything you can from it, which totally makes sense to me in a retail you know, talking about your three legs, like leg one and leg three, you know, retail and food service. Absolutely. D to C, are you spending more ad money on in that region? Are you seeing, you know, how do you, how do you, I guess, because it's so decentralized in a way, how do you think about regional sort of ubiquity when you're talking about direct to consumer and Amazon? Or do you not think about it and you just let it kind of happen on its own because that's who comes to the site? I think that that's a phenomenal question. I actually do very much agree as you think about building the business, you know, from once you have the product, once you have the brand, build your website, then it is own your backyard, right? And so you become the the favorite in the community, the favorite out at all your local restaurants or your local um, boutiques. Uh, the, the local regional grocery stores, you know, and, and, and create those ripple effects from there, but first and foremost, own your backyard. And I think how, for me, how that translates to direct to consumer, a couple different ways. Um, you know, we 
don't spend a ton of money on Facebook and Instagram ads because to your point, they're just not as efficient as they used to be. Everyone's Mm -hmm. spending a lot of money on that right now. Big, big, big businesses where they used to spend money on like grocery sampling. They don't have those dollars anymore because sampling's not allowed at the moment. So they put it towards Instagram and Facebook. And so you're competing against craft or like, you know, so we're going to lose. And, um, And so for me, actually, I've leaned harder into, and this was a kind of a second light bulb moment that we were talking about, Mm -hmm. influencer and, and, and gifting, um, because the nature of our product, we're not selling a thousand dollar stereo system where I can't gift it. I can gift bottles of hot sauce to people who we think might love it. Right. Or in our case, you know, you know, we also have our hot honey and our drink salts too. And so we did a big gifting of our hot sauces and our hot honeys at, when COVID started and all these chefs and all these um, celebrities were sitting at home cooking and, and on their Instagram cooking. Um, we right. did a mass gifting. And I remember a week later, um, uh, I'm talking to my head of sales and his phone keeps pinging, ping, 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 ping. And I'm like, what? I can't hear you. What is that noise? And he looked at the Shopify app and it said, there's 900 people on the site right now. And I was like, well, wow. that, that can only be TV. So I was like, what, how, what is that? And then I realized we had gifted Jenna Bush Hager kind of a week before for Mother's Day, a little mm-hmm. gift basket. I run into, I run into the TV, turn it on. It's a commercial. I was like, no, I missed it. And, um, a customer had sent and she had held up these bottles on her zoom with Kahoda and said, these, these hot honeys and hot sauces are getting me through. Wow. And that was purely from like a pivot in the moment of like, okay, restaurants are closed. We can't, we can't sell to restaurants right now. What, how are we going to make up for that revenue? We're going to lean into DTC and we're going to take that sample money and we're going to put it towards gifting. And so I believe regionally focusing on chefs, influencers, social media, celebs, and, and spread the word through some, some gifting and partnerships there is where I would spend dollars in terms of owning the backyard. Yeah, no, I think that's really, that's really good advice. And I think it also sort of speaks to, you know, knowing what you are, knowing what you have to offer, knowing, like you said, who your tribe is, but also knowing what makes sense for your particular product. You know, if you were starting a frozen keto bread company, it's very hard to gift frozen. You know, I mean, we do it, but, you know, fresh, it's really expensive. And, you know, it's almost like I had another guest on, um, she's the CMO at Sunwink and one of the founders, but she was talking about sort of making like a SWOT analysis for everything. You know, what, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are my opportunities? You know, what's the T? Uh, I don't remember. So I, I can hear people yelling at the podcast right now, <laughs> like your cars and like on your bikes, like the T is for the, I'll, I'll remember it. But anyway, just for everything, for every single little thing, you know, not, not just the big picture brand, but you know, what works for this particular product at this particular time in this particular junction, you know, um, which leads me to, you said something early on where um, you're realizing that your D2C and your Amazon have picked up in a way that you were a little surprised by, um, you know, you mentioned a conversion rate compared with industry average that, you know, is higher. Um yes. 
which is again, what you said, you know, you're now going to invest in the people um, maybe a little differently than you were before. And I'm curious, what does the team look like now? Um, when you say you're investing in that, what do you mean? And um, how, how's the process for hiring for you? And I happen to find it pretty stressful. Just yeah, for sure. Out. You know, I think I, I agree. I feel like for me, the sort of people management, team management is one of the most difficult parts of being a C- CEO. Yes. Um, especially a psychotherapist. For, yeah, especially yeah. in this context yeah. of like remote working. And like I'm in Charleston. I have one other team member in Charleston with me. And we are a team of, you know, Jeff and myself and six team members. So eight total. We're all in different cities other than Olivia, who is my, you know, works my head of e-com and myself. Um, and even the two of us are across a bridge and probably see each other once every other week. Um, and so I, you know, in terms of my strategy, I really believe in keeping your team like very, very lean, like mean and lean as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And then I really like to outsource and partner with expert vendors where I can. And that's fulfillment and that's PR and that's um, Instagram ads and, right. um, you know, lawyer, you know, keep as much out of, out of house as possible and bring in your, the best top performing go-getting generalists as, as, as much as you can. And I also believe in giving everybody on your team a little bit of skin in the game, provided your plan is to sell it, you know, and, and right. have a nice exit. So I, we have about 5% of the business carved out as like a team and, you know, in profit first share yeah. to give people like vested stock. Yeah. And so um, in terms of hiring process, I, I try to hire as, as, little as possible right. <laughs> keep, keep really really good people and keep them around by paying them well and um and then you know but they need to be generalist top performers who can manage six balls at once and yeah. jump in the air and when i think about the pivoting more towards direct-to-consumer this quarter after a really amazing q4 i was looking at our figures end of year we had six, six and a half percent conversion rate when the industry average in food and bev was three on a website, which was really exciting. And when um, you talk about conversion rate, do you mean like people who come to the website that then buy? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. So out of a hundred people, six people made a sale, six people right. converted to purchase. Right. Um, and the average is three in food and, and bev. And is there, do you think any, is there anything particularly compelling that gets them there or do you think they're coming with intent to buy in a different way because they're mostly organic visitors like any attribution there that you can think of off the top of your head I think it's probably a combination of five or six things I think it's a a sweet spot of like a Venn diagram overlap of everything from the right price point to a beautiful website that is clean and user-friendly and gets you right to exit as soon as possible to a product that's desirable that you like you said that, you know, they're coming there from a reason they're being directed because of an influencer they trust just posted about it, or they read us about, about us in Domino magazine as the favorite new hot sauce, or, you know, they just saw us on TV and they love Jenna Bush. So they're going and buying whatever she's recommending. So people are coming probably with an intent to buy, or at least an intrigue. And then right. they're seeing a beautiful site. Um, and, and it's easy know, to check out, which is exactly. the number one out, problem, right? <laughs> a good price point, not a, a nice, you know, priced for the market, right? Right. Smartly. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And so when you're talking about hiring and investing in that part of it, are you bringing some part of that in-house? I'm imagining you have an agency that does ads or does your email newsletter or, you know, what, what part of that, I guess, are you? I mean, so I think for me, when we looked at the end of the year and just saw how great, how, how high profitable our direct to consumer channel and how much we spiked, we're a big giftable moment. We have like, I really believe in the unboxing moment if you're buying direct to consumer. So you want to have a really beautiful on brand box, something that someone, uh, somebody who people love to share and post on Instagram and TikTok, something that is beautiful enough to justify videoing it, photographing it, get people excited. And so we saw a big spike in like the gifting season in the holiday. And, and so it, it made me realize that we need to invest more in influencer strategy. We saw some returns. So I want to say our break even return on spend for an influencer gift is, you know, two X or 2.2 X. So if we spend, you know, a thousand dollars to on a a promotion with a a partner, a celebrity chef or an influencer or somebody, and we make 2000 back in sales, we break even. That's our right. break even standpoint. So anything sense. beyond that is gravy. And right. so we saw a lot of successful partnerships in Q4 and it made me realize that we can unlock a flywheel effect if we spend more time and and it's all about kind of calendar windows and yep. bandwidth of your team to to book it and plan it and find yeah. the right partners. And so putting much a lot more money into those um you know web partnerships and paid partnerships, not just straight Instagram, Facebook ads. Right. Um, so it wasn't so much hiring internally as rejiggering our budget numbers of where we want to put spend. Got it. And then in terms of making it, let's go back to sort of the operations. So we left you in 2018 saying, okay, we have to get it out of these little baby barrels. Yeah. And, you know, we, we got to get this to a place where you know, we can, we can support the two new retailers that just said yes. Um, I mean, I think I've told the story a few times. I probably told it at the time, but I actually, my first advisor for Haven's Kitchen was the former COO at Sir Kensington's, a guy named Zach Gazanita. And he helped me figure out what sales does, what operations does, what, you know, what, cause we were just making this in our cooking school and selling it in the refrigerator at the cooking school. Um, and I remember, you know, we got our first purchase order and it was like, yay. And we made it and it was amazing. And then we got our second one, like 48 hours. And it was like four times the size. And I called him sobbing. Like, I was like, you know, and it's one of those stories where like, you know, everyone's like, oh, it could be worse, you know, but it was really actually terrifying. And I thought like, what the hell have I done? There's no way I'm going to be able to fulfill this. And, and we were making it in this incubator kitchen and all of that. And he basically said, he was like, do you remember like the term supply and demand and I was like, uh-huh. And he's like, so it's never, it's never, ever going to match up. Your job for the rest of the time that you run this business is making sure that when you make too much, you mitigate the problems with that. And when you make too little, you mitigate the problems of that. And just, that's it. Like, that's the whole business. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So going back to 
you know, you have, you have fresh market, say yes. You have whole food Southern say yes. You are not able to support that. You know, I would imagine that like every other founder who's come on this show with a unique product, none of us had an easy time. All of us went to 15, 20, 25 co-packers and everyone said, no, you can't do it this way. You have to do it this way, or you can't keep it this way. You can't age it that way. And you have to use this vinegar, or this acid or whatever. So yep. what, what did you end up doing? I mean, that's so true. We went through the exact same experience. I, it, I'm sure it is just a rite of passage of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and growth in your small business. And I also feel like just going out to somebody who's listening, who like doesn't have the business yet, or is just getting started. It's like, it, you know, nobody knows anything when they launch, right? It's mm-hmm. it's all just sort of like an excitement to learn, an exception, and like acceptance of the ups and downs, and facing putting out the fires day after day after day after day. And still, all- by the way, three four years in, <laughs> and the minute the minute that you get comfortable, you know, the minute you think like, all right, I kind of got this is the minute that you realize like you don't even have any idea what's going on. Totally. It's just a completely different game all of a sudden. And very true. It's it's interesting. You gotta love, you gotta love the game, right? The love of the game. So that, you know, number one, love the game. Number two, (laughs) um, I feel like, so another part about food and Bev startups and grocery businesses is or food and bev CPG businesses and grocery is it's incredibly capital intensive. And so you're also raising capital often mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're doing more than direct to consumer, direct to consumer probably gives you enough margin where you don't have to, but if you're selling to grocery and you're, and you're succeeding, you're probably also doing capital raises, which is its own second job while also running your business at the same time. Yeah. Um, and has been very, you know, a, a huge mountain of, learning for me, but also very draining. Um, The weight of taking other people's money and wanting to do right by them is very different than the weight of losing my own money one day, you know? So kind of like that keeps me up at night in a way that I've never had before with prior businesses. But we had to do a capital raise for scaling to Whole Foods and the fresh market. And as part of that, we were sourcing a co-manufacturer to scale with us because we could not fulfill orders with Jeff and myself hand bottling. <laughs> right. And Definitely. your point was, is exactly accurate where we started talking to all these commands for hot sauce and none of them were certified for cold processing and they all did heat processing to kill bacteria and we wouldn't sacrifice our values. And I think one thing I haven't mentioned that I think is incredibly important for a, a entrepreneur or potential, you know, food business to consider is know what you stand for, know your values, know what makes you different and honor those and be authentic to that and be transparent about it. And that is ultimately, I think, how small businesses grow when they, every decision they make, they turn to their values and say, no, 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 this is against my values or yes, this is in line with my values and act accordingly. Yep. And we had plenty of moments to take shortcuts uh, and just go the cheaper route or go take the co-man that said, yes, we'll do it, but you're going to have to boil your peppers. And mm-hmm. we weren't willing to do it because it, what's made it's, it, you know, our process, our craft is what made red clay different other hot sauces. And so it's what people wanted to, why people wanted to carve out space for us on the shelf next to the existing players. And so we 
you know, we were banging our head against the wall because no, no hot sauce commands could take us. Mm -hmm. And my head of ops at the time, who's this amazing woman, um, said to me, she said, you're not thinking outside the box. Like who cold presses? And Mm -hmm. we were like, juiceries. And so Mm -hmm. we started calling on fresh, fresh juiceries and found a co-man that makes kombucha that was willing to play in hot sauce. Mm-hmm. And we are the only hot sauce on the shelf that's made at a kombucha factory <laughs> in this country. Um, and it's because we are willing to kind of think outside the box and not um, sacrifice what we stood for. And and I believe our hot sauce is completely unique in flavor and, and, and you know, consistency and health benefits and all of that for that reason. And we're incredibly proud about that. Do you still have a head of ops or is, I mean, I would imagine someone's got to be managing the co-packer. We do. We do. So that person uh, was a woman at the time, uh, Ashley, who works for city ops. We had paid, um, we had paid, used part of our capital raise to sort of outsource a third party ops, Mm -hmm. best best in class kind of ops consultancy, because I did not have the money to do a. Yeah, um, we still, by the way, we still have operations in house, but we also still have rodeo on retainer because operations is massive and there's lots of stuff and building your own systems is, I mean, I think for a lot of us, it doesn't really happen until we're at like the 10 million mark, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and still, I mean, I think it's like finance. You're still, even if you bring experts in house, there's still a lot of stuff. Um, So I'm, I mean, I think rodeo is amazing. I've heard great things about city too. So yes, no, we had yeah. a great time and, and Ashley's here in Charleston. And I met her at like a food and Bev Charleston event here. And I just immediately clicked with her. I love her. So she's the one who kind of was like, think outside the box, Molly. Um, as we scaled, we got too big and actually Ashley had her second baby when I'm maternity leave and didn't have the bandwidth to kind of continue sort of servicing the account the way we need it. And that's when we brought in our own VP of ops um, and have just this past year promoted him to COO who's amazing um, and, and helped us scale. Um, And, uh, you know, ops is probably of all the roles in the company. I could kind of step in and play if I needed to. Right. One where I know it is not my skill set. No. (laughs) Somebody else to do it. They will do a better job. And I think part of being a CEO or an entrepreneur is recognizing what you do well and recognizing your weaknesses and, and hiring accordingly. I, I will say this and I am not trying to be like, overly humble here. I I think I've realized that my skill set is very limited, you know, what, but, but I do think that what you learn is that, you know, when you, when you start the, you know, I always use this example, you know, you're really good at sixth grade softball and you're like, yeah, I'm a great softball player. I really know this game. I'm great. And then someone's like, okay, you should be on seventh grade softball. And you get there and you're like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> this is this is how you play softball? And then all of a sudden you're like, no, I'm really good. And every step of the way, it's like middle school and JV and varsity. And that's not even close to the game that is the actual game, which is oh. what, you know, the, the major league players are playing. But, and... And so, you know, every once in a while you get comfortable and you're like, no, I got this. And that's kind of what I mean by the minute that you're comfortable, you know that you're about to get smacked in the face with like, this is actually how you play the game. And we've all been playing with our left hands kind of. But I think as the, as the leader of that, the, the, 
I've come up against sort of, you know, I've always been able to sort of give everyone the vision. I've kind of known the lampposts that we're running toward. And I haven't been, you know, I don't know how to do order management or inventory planning. I, I certainly don't know, you know, how to do the intricacies, but I kind of knew how to get us to where we needed to get to. I think in that sort of 5 million range is when you all of a sudden, things get a lot more complex. It's just, you know, I'm, and I think, you know, like you said, one of the realizing as a leader that you're not going to be able to control everything, but you just need to find really smart, really capable, really driven people who care, who can, you know, is the difference between succeeding and not. Because the teams that I know that haven't done that, no matter how good their product is, no matter how strong their brand is and how loyal their tribe is, they don't end up winning. You know? I totally agree. I actually think good leadership is knowing how to hire good people and get out of their way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and so that's sort of what I try to do and, and be helpful where they need you, but really not micromanage and let them run and, and tr trust them, empower them to do so. Yeah, I'm working on that. I am working on that. Um, okay, last and final. Molly, anything you wish someone had told you five years ago or you would like to just yell from the top of a mountain for people who are a year or two or three or four behind? I feel like, you know, more and more, again, I just back to the entrepreneurship being a marathon, not a sprint, right? You know, you're depending on what your end goals are, you're signing up for five years, 10 years, 15 years of, 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 a, of a journey where you're getting up and you got to be okay with the grind every day, right? And I think so for me, there's no quick fix. There's no overnight success. And I, I think you just need to be really mindful of the passion and, 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 and authentically sort of authentic love for what you're doing. Um, because if you don't have a passion, authentic love, and you're just doing it for money or success, you're going to burn out. Yeah. Or um, you think it's going to be a quick exit. Exactly. It won't yeah. be. And nope. so you got to do something that's really on your heart. That's true. And then the scary days, the fiery days, they'll be worth it. Um, I also feel like as a small business owner, entrepreneur, and specifically in the food and bev space, which is very um, challenging, it, you need to take care of yourself and give yourself breaks and, and find those moments of joy and balance outside of work too, because your business doesn't function if you burn out. Yep. And so taking days off or taking trips or inspiration moments or a drink with your girlfriend or you know, time with your children or whatever it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. A bath, I've been a in bath. the tub a lot lately. <laughs> and so for me, it's, it's, it's taking care of yourself and giving yourself the grace to know that you're not going to get it all done today. So what are the two or three things you can do today that are attainable? What's the next right step in front of you? And that's all you can do. The self-awareness to know that, that that's all you can do. And that's, it's the baby steps. I just read Atomic Habits, which I think was an amazing book, but mm -hmm. baby steps over time is what moves mountains. Yep, totally. All right. Well, that is a beautiful way to end. Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so many, I took a bunch of notes and I've been like thinking about like, what am I going to title this? What am I going to title this? So I have a feeling I have an idea. Um, really nice meeting you. Oh, thank you so much, Allie. I really appreciate it. 
And Armin, thank you as always. We didn't have any troubles today. Hopefully that is not famous last words, but very much appreciate you engineering the show today and every week. Um, and for all you listeners, thank you so much. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.